Florio, you can write what you want. It's okay. Oh, wow. How about that? What are you doing here today? Your last act in decades of coaching. Your final press conference as you walk off into the sunset. You exit, and then you come back to say more. You actually come back to say thanks to all of you, not just you, but, you know, nationwide. And, and Florio, you can write whatever you want. I don't give a crap. I'm surprised you didn't say I don't give a SH-T. It's very difficult to have professional chemistry if you don't have personal chemistry. Like, I know for me, I, well, maybe it is for you, but I know for me, if I didn't like you, this would be difficult for me, and it would be drudgery for me, and I would, I would hate and dread every time that you and I are doing this, and I would be unpleasantly surprised when you show up on a day I thought it was going to be Shireen instead of pleasantly surprised as I was today. No surprise today, Shireen Williams. I didn't get the memo yesterday that you weren't going to be on at all. I saw a few text messages, but I never really had it register in my impaired brain that you were off, and there came Miles, and it was quite a surprise, but we powered through it. Yesterday was full of surprises. Hopefully today we'll have very few. We do have a not really surprise guest, Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, coming up in a little while, but Shereen, welcome back. How's everything? Thank you. No camera, but we got Zoom. We got that working, so we're doing okay. Technology didn't pair up with me yesterday, Mike, which is not unusual. I'm not really technologically savvy. Biggest question I have for you, WrestleMania coming to the Metroplex. Do you have front row seats? I do not have front row seats, but the people are everywhere, 100,000 people. So I'm already arranging, like I live literally almost three miles from the stadium very very close so we i've already arranged our weekend so we don't go anywhere near the stadium or any restaurants near the stadium or anything like that because it's going to be packed in town this weekend well thank god COVID is over even if it really yeah. isn't thank god that for all intents and purposes it is the show far from over we got a long way to go let's get into some of the news before we take a break to talk to rick stroud and let's begin with this confusing situation in Washington. It was Tuesday of this week that the commissioner said, and Shireen was there to witness it, that Daniel Snyder, the owner of the commanders, still not in day-to-day control of the team that he owns. And at some point, Goodell and Snyder will talk about it. And it's been nearly nine months and who knows when they'll talk about it. Who knows even if they need to talk about it because the Washington Times has since reported that Daniel Snyder's back, that he's resumed his day-to-day role with the team that he's been involved in big decisions like the trade for Carson Wentz. So I don't know what's going on here. And I asked the league for comment. And the comment that I got was along the lines that we don't really have anything to add to what Rogers said on Tuesday. I understand that. But you see, the report that came out after Tuesday doesn't really mesh with what Rogers said. So either the report is wrong or Rogers wrong something's not right and that's why we asked the league and i think it's a fair question i don't really have anything to add isn't really an answer shireen no it's really not mike and you know he remains on four committees at the nfl and i assume he wasn't at the owners meetings i never saw him and i saw most of the owners so i assume he wasn't there but my question would be if, if he's truly back in the day-to-day operations did he ever leave and if and if he really did leave how long did he leave when no Ron Rivera after the trade for Carson Wentz said on the record he had talked to the Snyders plural about the decision to trade for Carson Wentz so he has been involved in the organization to some extent I'm just curious did he ever leave and if so how long did he leave for Mike well, and that's an excellent point, and it has been a very confusing situation from the get-go. I think at a certain level, the NFL is afraid of him. I really do. He sues yeah, everybody. Yes. He doesn't want to get into a big fight. They don't want to get into a big fight with him. He brings the fight wherever he goes. Peter King made a great point earlier today. At what point, if you're Daniel Snyder, do you just say, life's too short for this crap? I'm paraphrasing, but you're under siege from every direction. Your fans hate you. Your team's not very good. Your partners really don't want to do business with you anymore. What keeps you going 
when the walls have completely closed in on you and all you have is your wife and your kids and maybe your dog if you have one. And that's it. At what point do you say, I really don't need this. I don't need money. I don't need the headache. I can just go back to enjoying my life without this extra stress. It really is unfortunate that his passion for the franchise drew him into it. And as a result, and he only has himself to blame, but the thing that he loved has now made him miserable, or at least he should be miserable. I don't want him to be miserable, but how could you not be miserable? Well, and that's the thing, Mike. The NFL would love for him to go quietly in the night, sort of like Jerry Richardson did, but it just doesn't seem like that's going to happen. This just seems like a drama, and it is a drama of Daniel Snyder's making, as you said, but it seems like a drama that's going to end very badly for the antagonist, who is Daniel Snyder, in this story. And my question is, who else from the NFL is he going to take down with him? What else does he know? Because it's always seemed like the NFL really doesn't want to force him out. And he's not going to go on his own accord. So how does this end? What happens? And if if they do end up forcing him out, who does he take down with him, Mike? Because it just seems like that's kind of been the case of we want to protect him because he knows too much or there's other stuff that could come out on us or whatever the case may be. But there's more to this story, I think, than what we've even heard now. And we've heard a lot. Some would say he's already taken down John Gruden that Daniel Snyder is the one responsible for the emails that were leaked. Now, I don't know that, but I know that the universe of people who had access to those emails was extremely small, and Snyder obviously one of the people who had access because they were on his servers, his team's internal digital operation. And whoever did it is the person to blame for Congress being actively involved in this. There was no issue. There was no investigation. There was nothing. It was over. They had played it perfectly when they announced the findings, although they really don't have any specific findings to share, of the 10-month investigation conducted by Beth Wilkinson on Thursday, July 1. Perfect timing. Long four-day weekend for 4th of July. A lot of people off Friday. A lot of people off Monday. The world really didn't get back up and running again until Tuesday the 6th, and everyone had forgotten about it. It was over. It was done. It wasn't until early October when the John Gruden email surfaced that people started putting two and two together that something's not right here. Something is missing. Transparency is needed. And that's what fueled this congressional investigation, which has now taken a turn into financial irregularities. Reportedly, according to frontofficesports.com, two sets of books. And, Shereen, I said this yesterday. I can't help but wonder whether or not somebody from the NFL that would very much like to see Daniel Snyder out is feeding information to this committee through back channels to get them to come after Snyder because it becomes a lot easier for them to be done with him if he is forced out, not by his partners, but by circumstances related to potential criminal liability, if it gets to that point. Well, and Mike, how does this play out with the House Oversight Committee? Exactly what happens now? What are the next steps that they're going to take in this? Well, there's a very small percentage of these investigations that become public hearings, and that's what the NFL behind the scenes is trying to finesse. That's why you have lawyers and lobbyists talking to the people who are on the committees and their staff members. You really don't need to have a hearing on this. Now, it may not be quite so direct like it would be on a TV show, but the bottom line is they are trying to keep this from becoming a bigger deal than it is. You try to placate the folks on the committee. You try to make them think they're wasting their time if they have What really is a show trial when one of these committees has an open hearing, but it can be very valuable because it gets the attention of the public and the private entities out there that know that they are subject to governmental oversight. And there could be legislation that affects everybody coming out of it, and all these things come to light. So I think what they'd like to avoid is a hearing at which Daniel Snyder, Roger Goodell, Beth Wilkinson, and others come and testify. That's when it gets real, and I think that's what they're trying to avoid. And as a practical matter, the clock is ticking because the widespread belief is that the midterm elections later this year will result in the Republicans taking control of the House again. And the moment that happens, I think, is when this investigation is over. So there is a ticking clock on what can be done, and the NFL presumably trying to run out the clock. That's what they did 
back in July successfully. They ran out the clock of any criticism that emerged then, and they're trying to run out the clock now. I think that's the overriding goal. But if the committee trips over something that results in a referral to the Department of Justice, then you got a different problem altogether. And see, for as much as the NFL needs to worry about the legislative branch, the NFL also needs to worry about the judicial branch because all it takes is one ambitious prosecutor who decides to exercise very broad discretion to go after one of these American oligarchs who has crossed the line and everybody needs a reminder on what the law does and doesn't allow. So I think that's the worst case scenario for Washington and for the NFL. But but the NFL may be welcoming portions of that worst case scenario because it would help them, as Miles would say, it would rid them of this meddlesome priest once and for all. <laughs> oh, that's the truth, Mike. You know, you talked about Daniel Snyder, why he just doesn't go and, and enjoy life and enjoy his kids and whatever else he does in his free time. And the only thing I would say to that is, is to walk away is, is the losses to me would add up. And I would either not be hands-on like I've been for my entire career and figure out I'm the problem for this organization or I would sell the team and move on. The losses would add up to me. I mean, this is a team that the last 14 years has had three postseason appearances and no wins. 1991 was their last Super Bowl. Their last playoff win was 2005. I, you know, if I'm Daniel Snyder, I, I don't enjoy this. I don't enjoy losing every single week, every single year, not being in it, not being a contender. And, and maybe he thinks he can keep turning this around year after year after year, but that just doesn't seem like a lot of fun to me. So I'm not sure why he's enjoying being in this position, being the antagonist, being the guy everybody loves to hate. Even Washington Commanders fans don't like Daniel Snyder and want him out of there. They probably want him out of there more than anybody else simply because the losses have added up under his tenure so that part of it to me doesn't add up that what enjoyment really does he get out of this does he get the limelight being in the limelight i mean you know nobody looks at him positively in that limelight so i'm not sure what he gets out of owning this team mike other than getting rich and richer every single year i was told back in 2020 when he was fighting with his limited partners who were trying to sell their interest in the team they couldn't find buyers because people frankly don't want to do business with daniel snyder Snyder ended up buying them out entirely. There was litigation. It was ugly. It was nasty. It was messy. I was told back then he's determined to give the team to his kids. And that could be the solution to this. He steps aside. Wife takes over. Wife gives it to the kids at some point. And that's it. And it's done. He doesn't have to sell it. He gets to keep it. And his kids get to have it. And Washington Commanders fans will hope that, as I said earlier today, and I don't mean any disrespect here, but it would be a natural reaction if you're a Washington fan. You want to make sure the apple falls in the next orchard over if it's Daniel (laughs) Snyder's kids who are running the team. Let's hear from Alex Smith, former Washington quarterback. He was on with Rich Eisen today, and apparently he said a few things. I haven't heard them yet, so it's going to be news to all of us. Here's Alex Smith from earlier. So you're saying whatever was going on in the front office was affecting your ability to to – to play football and focus God, on. Yeah, I mean, how could it not? How could it not? I mean, for me, like, yeah, I mean, all the stuff there uh, with, with, you know, just the entire organization from ownership down head coaching and, and GM, it's just, it's, it's a lot of, there, you know, there's been historically a lot of drama there and, you know, it's a big market, uh, you know, obviously the capital and, and a lot going on. And that organization is a really storied franchise and, and uh, I just, yeah, there's a lot of turmoil and a lot of distractions. So, so to say that the stuff going on in the building doesn't infiltrate the locker room or out on the field, it would be crazy. That happens everywhere. I think that's what great organizations eliminate. Um, and the bad ones have a hard time with that. All that, all that noise creeps into the building. Um, and it, 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 yeah, it does. It does affect the product on the field. So I think the, you know, the great organizations and coaches have a, have a knack to keep that out of the building to quiet the noise, to, to decrease uh, distractions and, and focus on football. But it, it's that's easier said than done. You know, I can make it a lot easier for him. I can shorten that entire answer to five words. You know what they are, Shereen. Dysfunctional teams do dysfunctional, dysfunctional things. things. And I'm, I'm embarrassed that I had to actually count them out on my hand, but I did. I didn't want to get it wrong. <laughs> uh-huh. But that's really what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, it is. And it's been like that for a long time since Daniel Snyder took control of this football team, Mike. It's no different. And I mean, Alex Smith, who was there from 2018 to 2020, just skewered Dan Snyder in this organization. I mean, he used words like turmoil and difficult to focus. And it starts from ownership on down and uh, turmoil, uh, you know, difficulties, all of those things, all of those key words. Alex Smith used them in his interview uh, with Rich Eisen. So I think that tells you something. I mean, none of that's a surprise to any of us on the outside, but to have somebody who was on the inside for three years saying that, that tells you a lot about the state of this franchise right now, Mike. Not a surprise, and it makes it even harder for people like Ron Rivera, who I think is of incredibly great coaching stock, great yeah. character. The best thing that team has going right now is Ron Rivera. And he said earlier this week that, it's kind of hard when the team is getting dumped on all the time and you get sick of it. Well, you did take the job. You did kind of know. And Ron Rivera, I think, would have had options. He wanted that job. But I think if anybody's going to be the central figure in turning things around, it will be Ron Rivera. Let's move on to another topic that I'm very intrigued by, and I didn't catch this earlier this afternoon. Colin Kaepernick is going to throw four NFL scouts at – the Michigan spring game. So he's not just going to be an honorary captain. He's going to be there and see, this is great. This is kind of what the NFL was trying to set up back in 2019. No one has brought Colin Kaepernick in for a workout. No one wants to deal with the blowback from 30% of their fan base for having any association of any kind with Colin Kaepernick, including a workout. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's wrong. But I'm just saying that no one wants to do it. No owner has the moral or financial courage to take on that fight for a guy who's just coming in to throw passes to wide receivers to see what he's got. Because that's the blowback you're going to take from some of your fan base for even even kicking the tires on Colin Kaepernick. So, scouts are going to the Michigan spring game. Scouts are going to see what's going on with the incoming class of recruits that are going to be entering the draft next year or the year after or the year after that. So you have Colin Kaepernick go and throw. So no one takes any flack. No one gets any blowback. No one's going to say, how dare you go to the Michigan spring game because Colin Kaepernick threw there. Well, I got to go to the Michigan spring game. It's the Michigan spring game. It's what we do. So I like this. This is genius by Jim Harbaugh, and it just underscores the fact, Shereen. If he had gotten the Vikings job, Colin Kaepernick could be on that roster right now. Oh, I have no question, Mike, that the Vikings would have signed Colin Kaepernick if Jim Harbaugh had gotten that job. And he's trying to help help him. And, you know, Kaepernick had his best years in the NFL first four years with Jim Harbaugh as his coach. The last two years weren't as good. Hasn't played since 2016, and you've written repeatedly that you think it's over for him, but he's doing everything he can to try to get back in the league. I was there uh, this week when... Uh, Pete Carroll was asked about Colin Kaepernick. They had that initial conversation, and talks have not progressed. And I'm convinced the Seahawks have no intention of signing him, even though they need a quarterback with Drew Locke now penciled in to start for them uh, this season. I have no doubt that they're not going to sign him. So I don't know if he'll get his chance, but this is brilliant. It gives him a chance to go before NFL scouts and at least get seen. Now, maybe GMs and coaches, head coaches won't be there, but at least scouts will be there and come back and say, hey, you know what? He looked pretty good in this throwing session. Maybe we should think about this if it's a team in need of a quarterback, Mike. I'm very confused. If you say the Seahawks have no intention – to sign him, are you saying they're going to sign him? Because that's what it means in Seahawks speak. <laughs> no, right? That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, but they're not going to. And they're the only team that's yeah. ever brought him in for a visit. Any team could yeah. bring him in at any time for a workout or a visit. And the Ravens were moving in that direction in 2017. But his girlfriend posted something on social media about Ray Lewis and Steve Bishotti, to which they took exception. And look, I'm not a big fan of holding the actions of someone's significant other against the person that you may be employing. I don't really like that. I was never really cool with that by the Ravens. And frankly, if Jim Harbaugh is such a believer in Colin Kaepernick, John Harbaugh has job security through 2025, and he's got a quarterback who won't engage the team in contract negotiations, they need a fallback plan 
for Lamar Jackson. And I know that Colin Kaepernick at this point isn't a long-term answer because he's 34. That's the other part of the problem here. This is why I say it's over. Because they have successfully kept him out for five years. And the window to me was the most open it was ever going to be after the George Floyd killing. And a lot of people said, hey, that's what... That's what this guy was trying to tell us about in August of 2016. And it didn't happen then. I remember thinking in June of 2020, it's going to happen. And, and there was some weird reporting from NFL media. I can't remember the exact wording, but it was just really weird. Like, there's still reservation. There's still hesitation. There's still this tentative nature to doing business with Colin Kaepernick. And it still persists. Even though I think he has wisely made what is his last-ditch effort because we've learned this year on the quarterback carousel, the supply doesn't meet the demand, especially in Seattle where they have Drew Locke. And there are other places where you can say, do they really believe in that guy? But I really don't believe that any of those teams are going to sign Colin Kaepernick. He'd be basically taking an entry-level minimum salary gig, trying to work his way back up. No team is going to say that's worth the headache, given the baggage that Colin Kaepernick brings. I think that's wrong. Again, there's no owner that has the moral or financial courage to do the right thing here. If they want to prove me wrong, be my guest. But I don't think any of them are brave enough to do the right thing because it's going to cost them money and it's going to cause them to be criticized by roughly 30% of their fan base who will never understand, never accept, never relent in the hatred of Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, you're right, Mike. And, you know, Seattle, obviously, in need of a quarterback. And and Baltimore, simply because John Harbaugh is Jim Harbaugh's brother, make the most sense if anybody's going to sign him. But even then, I just think it's over for Colin Kaepernick. It would be a minimum deal. He would go in as a backup. He would have to even earn a roster spot. It's It's a lot. Uh, And the fact that he hadn't played since 2016, all those things add up to tell me that it is over for Colin Kaepernick, and it's a shame. It shouldn't be over. He was good enough to play in this league. And frankly, he's better than a lot of the backups that we have in the league right now. He's better than probably a lot of the starters, some of the starters anyway, that we have in the league right now. But he's just not going to get that chance, I don't think. I hope he does, but I don't think he's going to. Let's go ahead and take a break. Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, ready to roll. Who ordered the code red? in Tampa Bay, if there even was a code red. We'll get to the bottom of that with Rick Stroud when PFTPM continues right after this. I guess the follow-up to it's better to be feared would be it's better to be buzzed. That would be the better to be boozed. It's better to be boozed. That's it. That's the story of the three years of Bruce Arians in Tampa Bay, including the two with Tom Brady. It's better to be boozed. Uh, Coming from Seth Wickersham in 2029. Seth was made aware of the follow-up to It's Better to Be Feared. He likes It's Better to Be Boozed. I gave him the choice of It's Better to Be Boozed, It's Better to Be Buzzed, It's Better to Be Beard. I think It's Better to Be Beard is nice, too, because it rhymes with feared, but regardless. That's when we'll get the full and complete, unfiltered, unadulterated chapter and verse, more details than you ever wanted until you realize you get them and then you want more as to the three years of... Bruce Arians in Tampa Bay. Here's a guy who could write that book, frankly. Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay yeah. Times. What's up, Rick? What's going on, guys? Good to see you. Just another normal week in the National Football League. When did you first have an inkling of what was going to go down on Wednesday night and then on Thursday? Uh, about the time, I guess, that Bruce Arians decided to give the story to our good friend Sam Farmer and Peter King, which I still have a bone to pick with Bruce about that. What do I know? I'm a <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, never a dull moment around here. We have retirement parties and then unretirement parties, and then I don't know who's next. But, um, you know, listen, uh, it it was surprising, to say the least, the timing of it. But then you listen to Bruce, and, you know, I'm one that's always skeptical. uh, Maybe not as skeptical as you, Mike, but but a little bit skeptical about how (laughs) these things come to pass. Um, But you know what? In talking to Bruce, uh, I, I do believe he, he wanted a role, you know, that, that would last beyond his coaching years. And I know this was going to be his last year coaching. There's been some signs. You know, when you go back and you look at it, um, you remember him at the Combine doing very little, if anything, uh, getting around on a cart like he did all season long. I know he says his health is not an issue. Believe me, it's an issue. He wants to stay as healthy as he is now. Um, but there were a lot of reasons. And 
you know, it's, well, I'm sure we'll get into Tom Brady, but I, I, I do think that there's a big part of Bruce Arians um, that has always wanted to take care of his guys. And I, I know he feels good about his decision. Well, yeah, it, Mike alluded to, Rick, the, the Tom Brady, did he order the code red? So that's the obvious question. The big debate is what kind of hand did Tom Brady play in this decision of Bruce Arians? Do you believe that Tom Brady ordered this code red? I don't think that he did. Um, it, it, this is not a Jack Nicholson moment on the stand. I, I do think, though, that he, did, that he had um, certainly input about the direction he wanted things to go. And, you know, those guys have never been, um, you know, at each other's throats. And Bruce is a very demanding coach. Um, but from the standpoint of where there's something, you know, Tom would not be a guy that would say, for example, hey, I'll come back if, right, if I don't have Bruce Arians to deal with. That's not his style. What he would say is, hey, here are some things I think we need to do. And those would be things that Bruce Arians doesn't want to do, right? Maybe, maybe a, an eye fullback, maybe um, more emphasis on running the ball. I don't want to throw it 700 times. I want to help our defense, complimentary football, that sort of thing. And, you know, so he might paint a picture where uh, there's a number of things that he enumerated that, you know, Bruce, he knows Bruce isn't on board with. But regardless of, of you know, what he said or how, who he said it to, um, there's no question he carries uh, the biggest stick in this uh, in this franchise. I mean, just look at who they have re-signed and, and, you know, the, the two years that he's been here, they virtually have never said no to him about anything. Well, they may have. I don't know if Odell Beckham was a guy he wanted or not, and I don't know if he wanted uh, Antonio Brown cut necessarily, but I think at the end of the day, they've given Tom everything that, that he's asked for. So, you know, uh, I just don't think it came down to – you know, I'll come back if Bruce Arians isn't my head coach. And let me flip it around, Rick, because this dawned on me Wednesday night as I was processing what had happened. Tom Brady unretires. 17 days later, his head coach is out. I got no sense of any dismay, disappointment, concern, nothing along the lines of, well, if I would have known that Arians was going to going to be gone I wouldn't have come back and there's no sense of regret from Ryan Jensen Leonard Fournette Logan Ryan have you heard any kind of oh oh god like this is a major problem for the team going forward or or does it seem from the inside the same that we see it on the outside that it's just going to be a smooth transition and nobody seems to be all that perturbed by it yeah, I think the latter is true, Mike. And I think it's because if you watch Bruce every day, he has been the, the ultimate CEO coach with the Bucs, right? He came in here saying he wasn't going to call plays, wasn't going to stay all night, up all night, you know, doing scripts and things like that. And he stuck to that. And he lets his coaches coach. You know, he got up there in his farewell address and said, I didn't do a damn thing. And I know he's being, um, you know, a little magnanimous there, but but part of that is true. He, he let his guys do a lot of the heavy lifting, most of it, in fact, and so from a day-to-day -day standpoint, and Bruce is still with the organization, you know, this is the thing that I think gets overlooked is that he's still going to have an influence on this, on this club, whether it's with Jason Light and personnel, uh, still being on the cart, you know, uh, at practice, whatever that is. Uh, and his guys aren't intimidated by that. You know, they have coached this way, some of them for 30, 40 years. And so um, I don't think that there is a, in any kind of panic or, gosh, I, I think we'll be, you know, in disarray without Arians as our head coach. And so that's why I don't think you've seen, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of shock and awe necessarily once those players got the word. Rick, Bruce Arians has talked about calling out Tom Brady, and he obviously did perhaps more than any other player. He's not afraid to call out his quarterback, the GOAT. Uh, how would you describe their relationship from the inside, from what maybe we don't see on the outside? Yeah, you know, I, I think Tom has a lot of respect for Bruce. And, and I also think that before he chose Tampa Bay, um, this is the most prepared guy in football, right, maybe in sport. And so he did his homework. He was trying to leave Belichick. He wanted to do it a different way. Uh, certainly the roster attracted him here most of all because he had a chance to win. Um, but he also knew that Bruce had handled celebrity quarterbacks before. I mean, he had Peyton Manning. He had guys like this. And so that, that was very important to him. And I think that they got along great. I mean, I, I didn't see the sort of schism that people have alleged. Uh, you know, like any relationship, they weren't always, you know, together. I mean, that first year was bumpier than hell. They were seven and five. Tom was taking a bunch of seven-step drops. They didn't have any pre-snap motion. They didn't have a lot of play action 
And they had a meeting of the minds, and Tom got his way. And now you see an offense that resembles exactly what he did in New England. That's not by accident. Tom was shocked that Bruce Arians had uh, very little or no input whatsoever on the offense. He let Byron Leftwich do it, and Byron was not prepared the way Tom is, obviously. So I think a lot of that was worked out in the first year. Um, you know, these stories about redlining game plans and things like that, that, that just simply I don't think ever happened. Um, but again, you know, going forward, I think Tom has a clear vision of what he wants. It may not be exactly what he's been doing here these last two years. And so, you know, Todd Bowles is going to enact some of those things. So I think Todd believes in, you know, more of a commitment to the run game, protecting the defense, playing more of a complimentary game, maybe not making him throw it 700 times a year. So I, I think you're going to see some changes and they're going to be changes that Tom wanted. Hey, Rick, you mentioned the redlining, and that comes from some tweets that were posted by Rich Ornberger, a former teammate of Tom Brady's in New England. Plus, and I know that we're not supposed to call out sources, but if you're going to drop something like that into the punch bowl, you open yourself up to people trying to connect dots. This guy is as tight as tight can be with A.Q. Shipley, member of the coaching staff. At a minimum, I think, anybody with any sense of responsibility and propriety when it comes to putting something like that out there is at least going to say to A.Q. Shipley, let me know if I'm barking up the wrong tree here. How could you not take advantage of that resource? So even if he's not your source, how can you not take advantage of A.Q. Shipley's knowledge of the team and say, tell me if I'm wrong? I say all that because what was Bruce Arians' role in the offense? The way that Ornberger painted the picture, Leftwich and Brady are busting their asses all week. Bruce Arians barnstorms in, starts changing stuff. That would make me mad if I'm there at any workplace. If I'm there working all week and the semi-retired CEO shows up at the end of the week and tries to change everything, I'd be pissed off. It would get old very quickly. And I may love you and want to golf with you, but I don't want to work with you anymore. So what was Bruce Arians doing or not doing with the, the work that Leftwich and Tom Brady were doing together? You know, Mike, I mean, he has the play sheet, and he wasn't in those meetings, so he has an opportunity to look at it late in the week. And there's no question that he could make changes. I talked to Bruce. I've never seen him more mad uh, than when I've talked to him than he was uh, after that story came out. He called and actually wanted to know, you know, he says, I've let some of these go. There seems to be one every week. But this one really, really ticked me off. And, um, and he kind of went through the story and, and said, you know, well, first of all, he says, I got treatment in my Achilles in the morning. I never get treatment in the morning, you know, that sort of thing. So he was trying to debunk it line item. But at the end of the day, you know, Bruce told me that, that he tends to add some things more than he takes them away. Um, but it's still his team, right? And, and you know, I, I think for the most part, he's going to defer to Tom, but he has a certain idea of what the way things should go. And Byron works for him and he is the head coach. So um, whether that was an annoyance, I would agree with you that AQ Shipley probably probably should keep his head down when when, Byron, when uh, you know when Coach walks by. Uh, but but uh, I, I don't know that that in a literal sense what was what was purported was exactly true. But there have been differences of opinion. We've seen from week to week. Uh, Mike, you can see the evolution of this offense. And all I know is that he won a Super Bowl. I would say one other thing. And that is your partner at NBC, Tony Dungy, did something very similar in terms of walking away. He came back to defend the Super Bowl. They didn't win it. Everybody was hyped up about running it back. And then he left, uh, you know, Peyton Manning, where I don't think there was any animosity between the two. Um, but he left, he left Peyton to Jim Caldwell and a Super Bowl-ready team that did, in fact, win the AFC and went to the Super Bowl and lost. So um, this has happened before. And again, if you look at Bruce's makeup, I've asked him about the Hall of Fame. I think if he won another Super Bowl, he might be a shoe-in. Shereen would know more than I would. But I think at the end of the day, he looks at his legacy as being bigger than that. The inclusiveness that he's had on his staff, you, you look at the ability to hand something that's going to be successful, as opposed to a year from now when Kyle Trask and whoever is battling out for a starting job. I think he really did want to set Todd Bowles up. I think it was a factor. How much, we may never know. Um, but, but the history of, of his, you know, coaching and, and, and such, I think, reflects that. Rick, what an offseason you have when you think back at the end of the season. Tom Brady retires, then he unretires, then Bruce Arians steps down. And you've, you've gone through a lot, obviously, this offseason. I'm curious, and you kind of alluded to this in the last answer, 
But if, if Brady had stayed retired, would Arian still be the head coach of this team? Because he said he wanted to set Todd Bowles up to succeed. So would he have walked away next year and given Todd Bowles like a really crappy team and stayed on this year? How would that have played out if Tom Brady had stayed retired? Boy, it's a great question. I mean, he talked a lot at the Combine about, you know, wanting to do that, wanting to, you know, have that competition. I mean, they were, you know, they were after Deshaun Watson, but he told me several times he didn't think that was ever going to happen here. I think ownership was not going to allow that to happen here. And I think for all the world, they were looking at, you know, Blaine Gabbert and Kyle Trask battling it out. And in that instance, I don't think he wanted to hand that to Todd Bowles. Um, you know, at that, also, they had not re-signed those free agents. Remember, Tom coming back is how you got Ryan Jensen. It's how you got so many of these guys to, to re-up. I think they've signed 10 or 11 of their own free agents back, and Leonard Fournette included. So I think that was a big factor, you know, that he didn't know what kind of time, team he was going to have, and he didn't want to turn it over at that time and say, I'm out. I had my Super Bowl. I had my run. Now you pick up the pieces and be a head coach that you always wanted to be, and he would fail. So this is with the best of all worlds as far as, as, far as Bruce was concerned. Last one for you, Rick. The talk before Tom Brady unretired was that at one point in the offseason, the Dolphins explored a package deal of Sean Payton and Tom Brady. The Dolphins admit that they contacted the Saints and inquired about the availability of Sean Payton after Payton had resigned. I mention that as the precursor to what's going to happen going forward. Tom Brady's contract has a no tag clause in it. So after this year, he's free and clear. He can go somewhere else next year. Do you think they give him a contract? Do you think he wants a contract that will go beyond this year? Or do you think this is it, and next year they would be in competition with 31 other teams in theory to try to convince him to play for them if he plays beyond this 2022 season? Yeah, Mike, I could be wrong about this. I don't see a scenario where Tom Brady would, would link himself to this team another year contractually. You know, one of the sound bites that everybody had from the combine was Bruce Arians when he was asked if, if he would consider, you know, if Brady came to him and said, I wanted to be placed somewhere else. He said, no, that's bad business. And he said, well, maybe for five first round picks. Why would Tom Brady link himself to a team like that? He did it for salary cap reasons a year ago. He was always going to play two years here. He wanted to re-sign the guys back. They wanted to get all, you know, 22 starters and run it back. And they did that. Um, but but I, I read your reporting. I think it's solid. This is the most prepared athlete we've been around ever. You cannot convince me um, as quickly as he retired at the end of the season that Tom Brady didn't think he knew exactly what he was going to do. And something fell through. And you reported it. I don't know exactly if it was the Miami situation or Brian Flores was a factor or what. But certainly he was headed somewhere else to do something else. Maybe not as a player, maybe as part of that ownership group. Um, but it didn't happen. And I think that's why he came back and decided to play. The Bucs owned his rights. He knew he could get these players back and have a good football team, especially in the NFC, the NFC South, um, you know, except for some bad calls by Todd Bowles, of all people. They might have played the San Francisco in the championship game and gone to the Super Bowl. So, uh, you know, I, that's a long way of saying that um, I, I do believe that Tom Brady uh, will not be linked to the Bucs beyond this season. We'll wait and see what they do with the contract, but I don't think he's going to add another year. Makes for an interesting 2023. We've already had a very interesting 2022. <laughs> Next year could be just as crazy. Rick, excellent work as always. Great job covering the Buccaneers and the rest of the NFL. We'll talk to you again soon. Good seeing you guys. Have a good one. There he is, Rick Stroud, Tampa Bay Times. Let's take a break. We've got five for Friday. Mail. Sean Taylor would have been 39 years old today. He was murdered in his Florida home in November of 2007 at the age of 24. Would have been one of the all-time greats. Would have been a Hall of Famer. He was maturing. He was developing. He was becoming a leader. He was becoming a great citizen. And Brian Mormon, my God, get the number of that truck. I interviewed Mormon about that after the fact. It actually ripped his shirt. That's how hard it hit him. And... He told his agent, get me a Reebok sponsorship because what better visibility for those shoes when they're high up in the air like they were on that hat. Look at that. Buy these shoes. Which ones? Those right there, right in front of your face. So that was back when they actually hit in the Pro Bowl. But I'm not saying they should. I'm not saying they should. 
But that was back when they did, and Sean Taylor oh. laid the lumber. I remember watching that live, and I remember just mm-hmm. shouting out a word that I probably shouldn't have shouted out in the presence of my son, who was maybe 10 or 11 years old at the time. I was going to say, that's probably the last hard hit we saw in the Pro Bowl. We just don't see those kind of hits anymore. We don't see any hits at all. Let's just be frank about it. But it ripped Brian Mormon's jersey. That's how hard he hit him. It ripped his jersey. All right. Uh, let's get to the mailbag. Go Longhorns, 45. Sorry, Shereen, for the NIT loss. Yeah. I mean, who cares about the NIT? Can the Cowboys hire a true A-list coach with the Jones family meddling in personnel? Shereen, your thoughts. You know the team as well as anyone. Yeah, I guess it depends on your definition of A-list because I still believe that soon, and by soon I mean in the next two years, that Dan Quinn or Sean Payton will be the next head coach of the Cowboys. And I'm probably going to be more surprised if it's not after the 2022 season, if Mike McCarthy gets more than one more year, because I don't think they're going to be that good this year. I don't think they're going to be Super Bowl contenders. They may win that division simply because that division is not very good. But I think Mike McCarthy is short term in this job. So then the question becomes, is it Dan Quinn? Is it Sean Payton? And I lean more toward Dan Quinn simply because they don't have to give up the draft picks. They don't have to give up a ton of money. And Jerry, for what people think of him, his historically is cheap. He doesn't like spending money on a lot of things. So I don't know that he's going to want to give Sean Payton what Sean Payton's contract currently has in it uh, or more to coach the Cowboys. And I know how much he thinks of Sean Payton. But I do think one of those two guys will be the next head coach of the Cowboys. And I would put, put both of those guys, Mike, on the A-list of coaches. I think we've learned recently and are still learning why jerry jones doesn't like spending money on buying out coaches he needs that money for other things (laughs) but i digress i i I know that i i know that there i'm not saying anything i'm just saying we now know why he's not willing to give away money to coaches to not work there have been times like with bill parcells i think he became exasperated with where the team was and he was willing to hand over some power to bill parcells and then they built a decent team and he didn't need Parcells anymore. And they've shown, and it took them years to get to the point where they figured it out, but they have shown they can put a good team together. And I think they could get a Sean Payton. And Payton wouldn't necessarily want to be directly involved in ownership, not ownership, but but personnel, personnel. to the point where he'd have final say over anything. You just work together and you make good decisions and you hope they listen to you and trust you when you tell them what you need. So I think they can get Sean Payton. And uh, I think that they better plug that Rooney Rule loophole that we learned about earlier this week, or Sean Payton could be the head coach in theory at any time like that. Mike McCarthy out and Sean Payton in. Leapers 500, what is the reality of how the league's stated desire for diversity is impacting the Broncos' sale and potential buyers? Is 345 Park Avenue sifting applicants in groups, waiving requirements, or otherwise putting a, th- a thumb on the scale? Will they? This comes from the, the statement that was issued earlier this week by the league regarding efforts to encourage the presence of minorities in ownership groups. And if a controlling owner is a minority, that's an even more favorable look for the group that's trying to buy a team. The problem with the Broncos is a trust is selling it. And the trust has a fiduciary obligation to maximize the return for the benefit of those who receive the proceeds of the trust. So, and, and, you know, whether there's a trust or not, whoever's selling the team is going to want to get the most money. So the, the desire to try to have greater representation or any representation of minority ownership other than Shad Khan of the Jacksonville Jaguars, that ultimately takes a back seat to getting the most possible return you can for your team. So it may be a tiebreaker, but it's not going to be a deal breaker or a deal maker. If it's close, then it's going to make a difference. In Denver, I don't think it's going to make a difference at all. The only way it makes a difference is if they relax the rules that allow you to put together the biggest pile of money. You can borrow more than a billion dollars, or you don't have to own 30% of the team personally. But if the final number is the maximum offer, the Broncos take it, but then the NFL tweaks the rules a little bit to make it easier for a group with a minority controlling owner to take over. That's how I see it happening. And even then, Shereen, if you end up with two or three minority-controlled teams, is that really going to solve the problems with the other 28? I don't think it is. 
No, it's really not, Mike. How many realistically bidders do you think will end up bidding for the Broncos organization? Joe Ellis, the CEO of the team and one of the three trustees in charge of it, says they have between five and 20. So I don't know. That's a big range. That's a big range. And ultimately, it's going to the highest bidder. And, And that's all it takes to be part of the club, folks. You can get in club oligarch by having more money than anyone else and putting it on the table to buy the team. You make the biggest offer, you're in the club. Doesn't matter if you know anything about football. Doesn't matter if you care about the team. Doesn't matter if you're going to be a good steward, a good citizen. None of that matters. All that matters is do you have enough money to make the highest offer. And the problem is, as these values go up and up and up, it's harder to find people who have the money to get it done. Gareth Johnson, for salary cap reasons, would be a good idea to remove the starting quarterback salary from the cap like you guys do with the MLS and designated player? Who's like you guys? Oh, I guess this must be a UK question because I ain't knowing nothing with the MLS. I don't even know anything about the MLS. That way other players can get paid more as they take more risk with their health than quarterbacks do. I've had this question come up from time to time. Should there be a separate salary cap for quarterbacks? Should they be exempted from that? I, I don't see that ever happening. It's a team's obligation to figure out how to work the salary cap. And whatever the quarterbacks make, they make. And that's that. And, you know, frankly, if you carved out quarterbacks, I think quarterbacks across the board would make more money. One of the reasons that you're holding down the salary is, hey, leave some money behind for the rest of the team. So I just don't see that ever working as a practical matter, Shereen. I would love to see that happen. I don't see it ever happening. And let's be realistic, Mike. Owners want to play, pay as little money as possible to players. And the quarterback salaries have gone up and up and up. Uh, salaries across the board have gone up and up and up. We've seen it at the receiver position as well. But that's a fact. They have a salary cap because as a group, they don't want to pay that much money. They want to pay as little money as possible to players and keep more money for themselves. That's the bottom line. Yeah, I agree with you completely, and I just don't think anything like this that would tend to result in more money being paid to quarterbacks because you wouldn't be restricted by the cap or there would be a separate cap and more quarterbacks would gravitate toward that limit, whatever it is. I just don't see that working for anybody. A very important question from Neil Watch's PFT, given that it is April Fool's Day, and I have gone from loving to hating April Fool's Day because now we're always on the lookout for anyone trying to pull a fast one. And a couple of them popped up today, but we fortunately did not take the cheese What is the best April Fool's Day prank you've ever been a part of or ever heard of, Shireen? Do you have one for us? I really don't have one, Mike. It's not my favorite day of the year because you always seem to be gotten by something. And the thing is, like I sent a reminder last night to to our PFT text chain reminding everyone that, hey, it's April Fool's. They've become stupid. They've become like people trying to trick you into thinking that it's real. I mean, you can't figure out quickly sometimes that it's an April Fool's joke. One player did that today. So I don't like that part of it and really what it's become. So it's really not my favorite day of the year, Mike. The best one that I can recall NFL-related was the Colts a few years back had completely white uniforms. Everything was white. The numbers were white. The trim was white. The letters were white. You, and, and they're like, well, they're not going to be able to tell our players apart. It's going to be impossible to scout the team. It was just great. It was very well done. And it wasn't really plausible. You could kind of tell from the get-go it was a joke. And that's what we used to do at PFT back in the early days. I would do – I wouldn't post one story at a time. We had a very cumbersome process, and we were using dial-up, frankly. But I would do a, a submission of three stories – followed by a series of links to news of the day. And the first story would be a mostly plausible, phony story about somebody coming back for retirement or somebody retiring or whatever. And then the next one would be less plausible. The third one would be completely implausible unless you were stupid. And then the links were clearly over-the-top lies And the actual links I used to the supposed news were to some form of something about the history of April Fool's Day or April Fool's Day in Switzerland or something like that. So so it was clear by the time you got to the end that it was all April Fool's Day. But even then, I was nervous about it. And once we developed a pretty sizable platform, I got away from it altogether because it's not worth any of it being regarded as true. And then you have to deal with that. Just not worth the headache. Here's the best prank I've ever been involved in, though. It wasn't April Fool's Day, but it probably happened in April because it was an Easter gag. 
we were coloring Easter eggs when I was a kid. And obviously the Easter eggs are hard boiled. And my, my dad was the one in the house who had the affinity for cracking open the hard boiled egg and eating. And I always, you know, to each his own. I think it's kind of nasty, frankly. I'll have scrambled eggs. I'll have them hard over. I'm not a big fan of the hard boiled egg. So anyway, when we were coloring the eggs, I held back one that wasn't hard boiled and colored it and put it in with the rest. And my, my, my dad was the one who decided he was going to have a hard-boiled uh, egg that he realized the hard way was not hard-boiled. Fortunately and unfortunately, I wasn't home to witness it. It would have been great to see it happen, but at least by the time I got home, he had gotten over it, so I didn't have to worry about the corporal punishment, Shireen, that was widespread back in the 70s and 80s. That's fantastic. And, oh, if it hadn't been in the video age, that would have been even better, Mike. So, kids, Easter's coming. Find an egg that hasn't made it through the pot of boiling water, color it and put it in with the rest, and set up your cell phone device, press record, and run. Run. Don't walk. Run. All right, last question. John Kasich, which team should get to wear the Houston Oilers alternate uniform, the Houston Texans, or the Tennessee Titans, who obviously once were the Houston Oilers? Well, Mike, I grew up in the Houston area, uh, and as a kid, I, I didn't like the Oilers. I grew up a Cowboys fan, but I love the Houston Oilers uniforms. That that those baby, especially the baby blues, they were beautiful, and I like the oil uh, Derek on top of the helmet. I mean, they were just really cool uniforms. Unfortunately, the Titans own the rights to those uniforms. I think the Houston Texans should be allowed to wear those. I think they should wear those. I think they should belong to the Houston Oilers, uh, Houston Texans, but they don't. And I've talked to Amy Adams Trump, the owner of the Titans about this, and she is not going to allow the, the Texans to wear them. They, she thinks that at some day the Titans will put those on and wear them as a throwback uniform. But that just, to me, I know they wore them the one year in Tennessee. I think it was one year in Tennessee, but I don't think they should, Mike. I think they should go to the Texans. I think dangle something, offer them a Super Bowl, do something to get those rights back to Houston because they belong in Houston, even though they belong to the Titans. Quick break, more PFTPM right after this. gave us rosters with no numbers. In my 45 years of covering the NFL in Houston, I've never been given a roster with no numbers. Why would they do that? Did they leave them out accidentally? No, they don't want us to know who the players are. There's 49 new players on this roster, so it'd be nice to have some numbers with the names and be able to see them, but they didn't do it. They didn't do it. I've just never seen anything like this. So, and I don't know why it's not going to do me any good to have it, so... That's what I think about this roster. That's a walk-off. He should have retired then, Shireen. Tell us about your good friend, John McClain. Well, he was my mentor when I started this in 1994 and one of my best friends in the business, Mike. And I'm going to miss him dearly, but he is retiring, and I hope he enjoys his retirement. Yeah, he is awesome. Great guy and a legend in the business. We can only aspire to be 20% of what he's been. We're out of time. See you Monday morning. Have a great weekend.